through 27, some of my favorite passages of Scripture. And uh, I enjoy these immensely, and I trust you will be greatly challenged and encouraged from these as well. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, we are so grateful to be gathered. Our hearts are full of joy since we've sung truth about you today. It stirs us. It is the Spirit of God spotlighting the beauty of Christ and his Father in our hearts. We can sense that, Lord. It connects us. It unifies us. It causes us to love one another and love you and serve together, Lord. We've experienced that already this morning. And now, Lord, we get to turn to your word. Precious word of God. Every jot and tittle is from you. Every word given by you, Lord, and it is authoritative. It is sufficient. It is without error, and it is perfect for what we need. And so, Lord, we find great encouragement of learning from you today. Lord, we're going to be challenged. This passage comes out of our hearts And so, Lord, we pray that you would pierce those hearts, cause us to be men and women, boys and girls, who strive to share the gospel in a greater way, in a more effective way, and more often, Lord, after this message. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've entitled the sermon, The Self-Denying and Self-Controlling Nature of the Soul Winner. Of the Soul Winner. Well, this passage here that begins, what we'll look at in verse 19 of chapter 9, we see the continual teaching, and I think really of this exciting book. The more I study it, uh, the more exciting it gets, because he gives us answers to so many problems. But as we continue in this, one of the things that you have to see, particularly in chapter 9 and flowing into chapter 10, is this overwhelming desire for Paul to win souls. He wants to win people to Christ. You'll, you'll, as we go through this, I promise you, as I studied this, you will be struck with this, this desire, this evangelical, uh, evangel- evangelical desire to witness with a passion for the Lord Jesus Christ to anyone he can get to. Notice in verse 19, here's his goal. Look at the mission-mindedness of Paul. So that I might win more, verse 20, so that I might win Jews, into verse 20, so that I might win those who are under the law, verse 21, so that I might win those who are without law, 22, that I might win the weak, so that I may by all means save some. What a remarkable statement. This is Paul's goal. He wants to see lost sinners saved. And I promise we're going to be challenged to see if this is our goal. You okay with people going to hell? See, Paul wasn't. And you go, Scott, what about the sovereignty? Paul teaches on the sovereignty of God. He teaches on the doctrines of grace more than any New Testament writer. And that's true. And that's true. However, you cannot find anyone else more gripped with the desire to save the lost than the Apostle Paul. And I think that is good theology. Sovereignty of God drives our desire to see people get saved. And this is who we listen to in this great letter. See, Paul wasn't just a discipler. He wasn't just a church planner. He just wasn't one who trained leadership. He was an evangelist from the beginning. From the beginning, he set his ministry out to win souls. That was the goal. It wasn't for bigger churches and more people and more programs. His goal was to win souls. And we see that, how he taught He taught his disciples the same thing. 2 Timothy 4, 5, just before his death, he says, But you, Timothy, be sober in all things, enduring hardship. And then he says this, Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Right there we understand that a ministry is not fulfilled if it does not evangelize. (laughs) That's what we do. And this is the heart of Paul's ministry. The heart of Paul's ministry was win souls to Christ. Well, I got thinking about Paul as an evangelist. And I thought, well, what can we learn? How can, how can I be a better evangelist? How can you be a better evangelist? How can we strive to fulfill the ministry of evangelism? 
personally and corporately as a church? Well, let me give you some things to write. In your notes, I gave you a, a little more room in the introduction because you know me and my introductions. But I want to give you several things, so write them down. You want to, you want to see people get saved? How do you feel about people going to hell? Okay, so, so let's learn from Paul here this morning. Number one, Paul knew and loved the gospel. I promise you, people will not get saved underneath your ministry, under your personal evangelism, if you don't know and love the gospel. You've got to know the gospel. You've got to know that it was the plan of God before the foundations of the world, knowing that man would reject their creator who made them in this image, they would reject him, fall into sin, but God had a plan to rescue them. You've got to know that gospel that it was Jesus coming to this earth to rescue us. And you've got to love it. It's got to burn in your heart. You've got to wake up in the morning and say, God, thank you for sending your son. I was hell bound. <laughs> See, know and love the gospel. That's who Paul was. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, for the love of Christ compels us. I mean, it just, it pushes him in everything he does. He says, having concluded this, well, you want the gospel? Here it is, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all so that, whoa, here comes the result, that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died and rose again on their behalf. Oh, you want to be a soul winner? You need to know and love the gospel. I promise you, if you do those two things, God will send people your way. Because he'll say, hey, there's a person who knows me, knows what I've done, knows what I've planned, and they love it. And I'm going to send people their way. Number two, Paul knew that God saved him for the furtherance of the gospel and the saving of souls. So there's this understanding that you're not just saved to hold dirt down. I think that's too common in Christianity. Well, what are you doing? Well, I'm just in my easy chair, flipping channels, waiting for Jesus to come back. <laughs> One life. One life. And that could end today. We have to understand, see, see Paul grasped this, that, that he was saved for the furtherance of the gospel. He was saved to spread the message of Jesus Christ. He had a calling, and he had a commissioning to the Jews and to the Gentiles, meaning to all people. That's where he was going. Do you have that? Do you believe that? See, this was clarified right off the beginning of Paul's ministry. He comes to Ananias, Acts chapter 9, 15 through 16, he says, but the Lord said to him, to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument. And I was scared of him. But he says, no, God says to him, he's a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. That was from the beginning. And then Paul writes to Timothy, he says, Timothy, I think... Christ Jesus, our Lord, 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 14, who has strengthened me. Now listen to this. Because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was a formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with faith and love, which are found in Christ Jesus. Hey, brothers, sisters. We have a commissioning. We're not here just to hold down certain parts of the planet. We're here to share the gospel. That's what we do. That's what God's called us. Three, Paul was unashamed of the gospel. He said, well, Scott, have you kind of hit that? Well, look, let's be honest. Have you had opportunities and failed to take them? If you're a Christian, you've got to go, yep. <laughs> We've had those, right? And maybe at times we're ashamed. Maybe it was a family member. It was a tense situation. Maybe, maybe it was somewhere where there was someone who was aggressively against Christianity or whatever it was. There are times that we can even act ashamed of the gospel. But Paul wasn't ashamed of it. See, he says in Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, why does he have to say that? 
Why does he have to tell us that? Because there's a tendency to be ashamed of the gospel. Ashamed that you're a Christian, you're a follower of Christ. You actually believe this book. That's going to get us thrown in jail eventually. You know that. Or killed or something. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of it. And notice what he says, for it is the power of God. The gospel, if you want to know how powerful God is, you can look at creation, you can see how powerful and beautiful he is, you can watch the waves, you can do all those, but you want to really see the power of God, look to his salvation. There's nothing more powerful than to save a person who has no rights, he's undeserving of grace, and he gives it to them and saves them not only for this life, but for all of eternity, that's power. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of it. See, this unashamed approach to evangelism was fulfilled through a strategy. The passage says he, to the Jew first and to the Greek, Paul had a strategy, right? He went to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. That means synagogues. That means religious leaders. That, remain, that means creating co-laborers and going into a pagan Gentile community. He wasn't ashamed so he could go do that. You know how hard that was? They all knew who he was. There was a son of a Pharisee. He's now following the way. He's in our synagogues, teaching Christ alone. <laughs> oh, you've got to be unashamed of the gospel if you want to be used of the Lord. Four, Paul trusts in the indwelling power of the Spirit. And look, he trusted in this indwelling power of the Spirit because it fueled his humble but bold witness to Christ. Most of the time, as I walk up those steps, you may see me mumbling. It's not because I'm losing my mind. I say words that I learned from Spurgeon. I believe in the Spirit. I believe in the Spirit. I believe in the Spirit. I pray that because me, humanly, cannot do what this word does. See, Paul had a strong belief in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, that he would take the words of the truth and he would pierce people's hearts with it. You have to believe that. <laughs> if you don't, you, you'll, you'll, you'll feel like a failure every time you preach or every time you share the gospel. And, 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 and you know, we're not always perfect, right? We might stumble and bumble our way through sharing the gospel. But if the Spirit's involved, he can take your stumbling and bumbling and save people. That's how good he is. Because <laughs> he's God. Right? Paul says, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, he says, When I came to you, brother, and I, I did not come with superior speech or wisdom or proclaiming to you testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. Isn't that hopeful, right? Some of you go, Scott, I can't do what you do. He's not asking you to do what I do. He's asking you to live a life and talk to your neighbor about Jesus. Paul says, look, I didn't, I didn't have all that stuff. I didn't have that, that gift package. But here's what he did have. And he said, but he came in the demonstration of the spirit and of power. You know why he came that way? Because verse 5 says, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And every time somebody gets saved, every baptism we see in here where people identify themselves in Jesus Christ, that they've been saved, they give credit to the spirit's work in their life that they took them from dead people and made them alive. And that's all you have to tell people. Can I tell you that I was once dead and now I'm alive? They're going, man, this is a great story. There's got to be ER and, and hospitalization and all that stuff. No, 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 no. It's, it's worse. <laughs> it's worse than that. I was eternally dead. Dead, dead. Not kind of dead. Dead, dead. And God made me alive through Jesus Christ and the work of the Spirit. Five, Paul loved and cared for people. And he desired that they wouldn't go to hell. This is a hard one. So in today's society. We're more separated than we've ever been. You know, let's, we got administrations that's going to stamp out races, racism and all that stuff. It's more racial than it's ever been, right? People hate people. Honk, yeah, yeah. You got a bumper sticker that says something, you're, you're going to get nailed. I mean, you can't speak without getting nailed one way or another. We're more divided than we've ever been. 
Do you love people? Now, you're going to have to pray for this. As a young man starting a ministry, let me tell you, it'll clear out, I didn't love people. I really liked this whole thing. That was kind of cool. My mentors were up there preaching away. Finally gave me a chance. Ran the whole church off in my first sermon. <laughs> Said I didn't love people. And guess what? They knew it. They knew I didn't love them yet. I was 19. I just loved me. <laughs> I was good at that. And that's some of your problems. Some, some of you really love yourself a lot. You're, you're in love with yourself. If you could marry somebody, you'd marry yourself. <laughs> but that wasn't the Apostle Paul. See, he loved people. He cared for people. He had a desire that they wouldn't go to hell. Listen to Romans 9, how he opens that great text there, 9 through 11. He says this, I'm telling you the truth in Christ, and I'm not lying. My conscience tears, uh, testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. I think you're going to hear something pretty powerful when he says that kind of statement. Then he says this, that I have great sorrow, unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed. The idea is damned. Separate it for Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Oh, my goodness. Paul just said he would lose his salvation to gain his brethren. Now he knows that's impossible, right? He can't lose what he did not gain on his own strength. But that's passion. Anybody have a lost family member in here? Someone that you know that if they, if Christ returns, if, if they die today, whatever the case may be, they are going to hell. That passion for the loss. See, this is why we don't reach people sometimes. We're so concerned with our eternal life that we're not concerned with the eternal life of others. Paul loved and cared for people. He did not want people to go to hell. Number six, Paul never forgot his undeserved grace and mercy. And this has to drive this, right? Paul, you don't, cannot forget where you came from. Paul over and over uses passages in past tense. And, he, and he'll use them in the plurals to say, we once were dead in our sins, and so forth. He never forgets where God brought him from. And brother and sister, if you forget that, you will be ineffective in the witnessing of Jesus Christ. Because what you'll do is you'll tell people how bad you are. I tell people this. Go tell them how bad you are and what Jesus did for you. They'll figure it out. They'll go away and go, man, I really thought that guy was a pretty good guy, but man, if he, if he was going to hell, I think I'm in trouble. And then God might stir their spirit and they may come back to you. Hey, I want to have another conversation about that again. You said you were going to hell. Can I ask you again why you're not now? See, that will come up. Paul said this, 1 Timothy 1.15, is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost or chief of all. Titus 3, he said... We also were once foolish, includes himself, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts, pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy and hateful, and hating one another. That's depravity. But, what a great conjunction. When the kindness of our God and Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Do not forget where God has brought you from. If you do, you'll fail to be a good witness. See, that's what makes him so glorious, isn't it? See, people aren't saved. They, they know the story of Jesus. He died. And they'll even come and they'll, they'll sing some songs with you and, and hang out. But then it just kind of rolls off them and they leave. You see, they haven't seen his glory, but you have. Because you were dead. You were dead. And he brings new life into you. You've seen his glory. And so it changes everything now for you. So pray that your children, your relatives, your parents, your, your friends, they see the glory of Christ. Just look up the word glory. How many times it's used in the New Testament? Just New Testament alone. And how often it's attached to the beautiful gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you want to be an evangelist, if you want to be a part of the Great Commission and fulfill our callings as Christians, these truths really motivate us to win souls, don't they? Now here... There's one more. 
And that's what this text is about. And it's very important. They're very important because, because these are often left up. And you, you say, oh, well, I'm doing pretty good on these. But it's this text where Paul shines. This is where God had really used him to help us be effective evangelists. Now, 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 27, shows us that Paul was willing to die to self for anything, right? He was willing to sacrifice everything in order to win people, and he had this amazing self-control so he could fulfill his ministry, and those are such keys. I promise you, if you will not deny yourself and you don't have self-control, you're not going to win people to Christ. You just don't. Because Christianity looks selfish to those people. God purposely showed us the illustration and taught us what self-denial looks through through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who denied his rightful position. He had complete self-control even to his last breath so that we would walk and follow him, and that's exactly what Paul did. So this is an amazing thought, right? And he had an amazing self-control. Paul did too. And he wanted to fulfill this calling. So Paul knew. He knew and loved the gospel. He, he, he knew he was saved for the furtherance of the gospel. He was unashamed of that gospel. And he, and he understood he had this empowering, indwelling work of the Spirit to strengthen him to share the gospel. And he had a growing care and love for people and the eternal state. And he never forgot that he, he received undeserved grace. And this propelled him. And he made statements, inspired statements, to live as Christ, to die as gain. This is what drove him. And so this sacrificial and self-denial and self-controlled life is the basis of evangelism. Now, I'm going to look at a couple of thoughts today. There's your introduction. Did I give you enough room for that in there? Um, this is fun stuff. Number one, Paul's strategy of self-denial in order to win the lost to Christ. Look at verse 19 with me. What a verse. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. Well, Paul is saying, I would absolutely do anything to win people to Christ. And this is the heart of the text. This is the context throughout this passage. So Paul illustrates this love without limits. This is where I got this type of theme thinking. He loves without limits because he will forsake his own freedom because Though he had freedom in Christ over certain things, he refused to be a stumbling block to people to come to know Jesus Christ. So Paul constantly examined his life to see if there were areas in it where he was a stumbling block or a confusion to those he wanted to save. Now, notice that Paul is free. The text says it. He chose to make himself a slave. And his, his love for the lost in his love for his loss, he sets those liberties aside. So remember, that's the context. The Corinthians are struggling. They're struggling as well. Do we eat meat offered to idols or not? That's the big battle that's going on. So Paul's response is, is it's not wrong in and of itself, but if it causes your brother to stumble, he says in chapter 8, verse 13, look back at it. He says, Odds won't eat meat forevermore. That's how, that's how serious he was. This is the way Paul approached evangelism. But meat wasn't the real issue, was it? The Christians had freedom to eat whatever. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 4, as long as it's given for Thanksgiving, you're free to eat whatever. The Bible's very clear on this, isn't it? But what is behind verse 19 is this love without limits philosophy of Paul. Now, now these two main points, first will show that he would rather deny himself the use of his liberties and even possibly give up everything for the sake of winning one person to Christ. But in order to do that, he had to be self-controlled. He had to exercise self-denial, not, not quench the spirit, and walk in self-control. Notice that first phrase, for though I am free from all men. This is an interesting phrase here. And what Paul's doing here is he's declaring that he has a relationship with God through Jesus Christ alone... And it's not controlled by rituals, it's not controlled by customs, it's not controlled by traditions, and it's not controlled by ceremonies. That's what he's saying there. When you look at the verse, for though I am free from all men, I'm free from the Gentile way, I'm free from the, the Jewish way, I am not bound by any of these traditions that both of them have. In fact, Paul said so 
perfectly as he was inspired by the Spirit. Romans 10.4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He did not look at all of the things that people do that he could gain righteousness that way. So he's making it very clear that he had experienced freedom. He was, he was once bound to Sabbath and bound to things that were, he had to eat or couldn't eat or keep this or that. But now Christ had freed him from trying, now think about this, Christ had freed him from trying to produce his own righteousness. Are some of you trying to do that? Are some of you in here today or hearing this um, are trying still to say, well, God, look, I went to church. I even went to Riverbend. <laughs> you can't gain your righteousness. And so Paul says, I'm, I'm free from all of that stuff. I, I have freedom from that. He's saying, look, I'm free from Gentile traditions too, right? There, those were all over, right? There was a focal point of pagan religions. There was, there was laws within the pagan religions. And, and then there was... There was laws in the lawless, right? In the law of the lawless was be individualistic, live your own life, do as you please. They were totally independent. Paul says, I'm free of that too. So in other words, Paul is saying, I'm free from all people, all their ritualistic activities, their ceremonies, their attitudes, and their behaviors. I'm free. Notice that word from in the text. It's a little Greek word, ek. Literally means to be out of something. So Paul's saying, I'm free out of all of that. If you're a Christian in this room and you're saved through Christ alone, through grace alone, through faith alone, you are free of all those traditions. They do not bring you to God. Now, as a result of that, we gather, we worship. There are certain traditions that we do that are biblical, but they do not gain our righteousness or give us righteousness through those traditions. And Paul knew this. And so all true Christians can say this, I am free from all men. But wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. Look at the next part of the verse. The middle of 19, I have made myself a slave to all. Oh, man, he uses the Greek word for slavery. This is an Old Testament word. It means to be enslaved. It means to be brought under subjection and submission. So what Paul's saying is, I'm like the slave of, of Exodus 21.6, who at the end of the, the time of service, at the year of Jubilee, when, when he had a chance to gain his freedom, he said, I don't want to be free. I want to be a slave to my master forever. And they walked him over to the doorpost and drove him all through his ear, and that told everybody he belonged to his master for life because he wanted to belong to him. That's what Paul's saying. He said, I've made myself a forever slave of Jesus. You know, we kind of probably should just line us all up on the way out and punch holes through our ears, shouldn't we? You know, Scott, come on. That's what, this, is, this is the attitude the Apostle Paul had. And see, if we're truly born again and we belong to the lordship of Jesus Christ, this truth applies to us. Romans 6, says, but now being freed from sin... Look at this. We're enslaved to God. What in the world doesn't like the Bible, right? Well, slavery in there. Yeah. Put, them, put the shackles on me and chain me to Jesus. That's who we are. Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 10, verse 44, whoever wishes to be first among you shall be a slave of all. That's the mentality. You go, well, Scott, wait a minute. How, how far do you take this? I mean, you know... I know we're talking about evangelism, but come on, Scott. Well, as far as you need to to reach somebody with Jesus. See, a slave to Christ says, I'm not going to stumble anyone biblically on their way to Christ. I'll give up whatever. Boy, that's tough on the American church, isn't it? Independent, free thinkers. We don't, we don't want that. This message doesn't fly in the majority of American churches, does it? But this is what Paul's saying, right? So what should I set aside, Scott? Let's be a little more specific. Well, anything Paul's saying here, right? Look at the verse. Anything that stands in the way of the true testimony of Christ. So well, how do you know this? Well, look at the end of the verse. So that I may win more. 
That's the purpose. So I may win more. You go, God, Scott, I thought God, God saves people. Amen. And guess what he does? In his sovereign plan, he chose to use saved sinners to carry a message so others get saved. And so he's willing to give all that up. And so what about the sovereignty of God? Well, God, God's going to save his elect. Do you think he has any problem doing that? He's up there wringing his hands. This is what's the problem with Arminian teaching. Man, I just, I just hope Craig, man, I just hope somehow he can just make his way to me. I'm creator of the world. I hold all things in my hand, but I have no control over his will. That's not what the Bible teaches. God's going to save the elect. Craig's saved. I know him. <laughs> Thanks for that clarification. The question is, is he going to use you? <laughs> is he going to use me? Am I so stubborn and so set in my American dream, you know, a three-by-two with a white picket fence, a dog, and two and a half children, I think it's down to 1.34 or something like that. Um, is that the goal? Or is it to see people get saved? Now, winning souls is a wise thing to do, but it's costly. Proverbs 11.30 says, he who wins souls is wise. But 2 Timothy, Paul wrote to, to Timothy in, in, in chapter, two, chapter 2, verse 8 through 10. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. Now think about that. Remember Jesus, risen from the dead. That's pretty costly, right? Remember Jesus said, take up a cross and follow me. What happened on that cross? He what? Died. It means the death of you. That's what it means. And so right there, we begin to see this introduction to the death of us and the descendant of David. Well, that tells us we got the right guy because he's the Messiah. He's, a, he's, he's what biblical theology has been teaching all the way from Genesis in the garden, chapter 3, all the way to the cross. So we got the right guy. So Paul says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, this is what I'm teaching. I don't teach anything else. And then he says this, for which I suffer hardship, even imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not in prison. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of the elect who are his chosen. Didn't matter. One life to live. I may die in prison, but I'm died chained to a guard who's going to hear about Jesus. That was Paul's mentality. That was his mentality. Enduring for the sake of the elect. And that, that means you might be a prisoner. You might go to jail. You might die. But for most of us here in America, that means we set aside a desired lifestyle. Maybe. I mean, we may set aside comfort. We, we may set aside the love of being accepted. I know kids that go to colleges that no one will talk to them because they stood up in their college class and said, no, God is a God of life. Abortion is murder. But Jesus loves you. And he died. And they got the boot. See, see, it may cost you some of that. It might cost you your preferences. Well, I got preferences. I think church should be done this way. You might give up on those things. Here's one. It might cost you your easily offendedness. I don't even think that's a word. Christians are so easily offended. We get offended at each other. You want to share the gospel? Most of the world's going to reject it. So we can't be offended. <laughs> we're, we're doing what Christ called us to do. And, and then here's probably the biggest one. You will be rejected by family and friends. You just will. Remember, take up the cross and follow me. Jesus' own family. When they knocked at the door in Mark 7, and the disciples said, hey, your family's out there. He goes, my you're my family. Those who seek to do the will of God, that's my family. Now later, we know that many of his family came to know the Lord after his resurrection, but Jesus was willing to press forward without them. Now, the problem is we see all this in the Corinth church. See, they, they were often more worried about their freedoms 
and going and doing what they wanted, right? This is why they're writing back to Paul. This is why he's responding to all this. The Corinth church was, was about individualism and empowerment and all of these things. So Paul's writing about how he, how he wants to put an end to that, right? And the problem is we, like them sometimes, we end up not resembling Christ We don't love without limits like the Apostle Paul did as he followed Christ. And we often become more offensive than appealing. Are you offensive or are you appealing to Christ? You've got to ask yourself that. I mean, be honest. Maybe you might have to say, you know what, Scott? I think my life as it stands with my neighbors, my coworkers, my family member, I think I am offensive. Not because I speak the truth, it's because I don't live the truth. See, we have to think about this. You go, well, what does that look like in the first century here as Paul is talking here and writing to us? Well, he gives real four very great applications of how to win the loss, and I think they transfer into our life. The Jew, the lawkeeper, the one without the law, and the weak. Let's look at the first one, to the Jew. Now notice in verse 20, to the Jew I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. Now the wording is key here. As a Jew. You go, wait a minute, wasn't Paul a Jew? You know what I think he would say to that? He goes, no, I'm a Christian. That's, I think, how he responded to that. Yes, I'm Jewish by heritage, but I am a Christian. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. That would be his response. And that's interesting how he writes. To the Jews, I became a Jew, so became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. Now, Paul had a goal to adapt his customs to their customs, right? He did this. He felt very comfortable celebrating days and, and ways of the things that they enjoyed and felt they had to do while he was with the Jews. We see him do this all the time. And some say, well, was he compromising? Well, no. I think in reality, Paul is winning the right to speak to them. See, there's things you do sometimes that are, might be in some of those gray areas in the Bible. Hey, uh, today we're going into this other uh, group, <laughs> A couple of us are going over there to share the gospel. See, Paul did that. He, he, he built relationships so that they would listen to him. And so he participated in some of the Jewish ceremonies where he could. Things he couldn't. He wasn't going to offer a sacrifice for his sins. He's not going to do that, right? But he, he participated where he could in order to not offend so he could win some to Christ. So now look at Acts 15 with me. There's some great examples in our missions class, we just finished up our last class in the seminary before these, these dear folks graduate tonight. Um, we spent a bunch of time in Acts 15, and it just thrills my heart to think about this book. Especially this part of this. Chapter 15, verse 1, catch up with me. Some men came down from Judah, and they began teaching the brethren. Now, they have made their way through Perga and uh, Pamphylia and so forth, and now they're down in Antioch. And so these brethren came down from Judah, and they said this, unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, that didn't sit well with Paul and Barnabas. And notice in verse 2, a great discussion or dissension and debate broke out. And the brethren then determined that Paul and Barnabas and others should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders concerning this issue. So there's this struggle. Now, now, these, there, is, there is a problem here, right? There's Christ plus circumcision, and that's, not, that's going to deceive people. But here I want you to understand, some of these brethren, and I'm going to prove this through this, they weren't just preaching a different gospel or adding to the gospel. They were concerned of their brethren, and if you didn't come to them in a certain way, they're not going to get their ear. Now, I'm going to prove that as we go along here. Look at verse 3. Therefore, being sent on their way to, uh, by the church, they were passing through Phoenicia and, and Samaria, just describing in detail the conversion of Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. So on their trip, they just told what Jesus was doing among the Gentiles, right? Everybody's rejoicing. Verse 4. And when they arrived in Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they, Paul and Barnabas, reported that all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees, now look at this phrase, who had believed, stood up saying it's necessary to, to circumcise them and to direct them to, ob, now here's the word, to observe the law of Moses. Now right now we begin to realize, okay, there's still some weaker brethren. They, they probably put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they're still holding the customs. But the main concern, as we'll see here, is the concern of missional effort towards the Jews. And, and, 
and, and yet there can be some legalism that, that comes in there. That was a problem. They're going to flush that out here in a minute. But some still were struggling with Christ plus. But, but others are going, look, if we don't come to these Jewish people in some kind of way that they can relate, they're never going to hear us. Six, the apostles and elders came together to look at this matter. And after there, and after there was much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. Well, where's that? Acts 10, Cornelius. Right? First time. He's going to the Gentiles. Remember, he has to have a vision of, of forbidden food to come down. And he goes, oh, Lord, Lord, my lips have never touched this. You know, and he, you know he's pretty righteous in that. And God says, touch them, you're going. <laughs> and he goes and preaches the gospel, and Cornelius and all his household get saved and so forth. Verse 8. And God said, and God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he's also done to us. So if you don't believe it, you have to understand the Holy Spirit fell upon these people and they're saved. We know it because they have the Spirit of God. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, he's going to put, a, put to rest some of this Christ plus stuff. This is a key statement, verse 10. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test? By placing upon the neck of his disciples a yoke which neither the fathers nor we have been able to bear. Yep. You're going to say Christ plus the law? Hey, he's saying, we struck out. <laughs> Look at all of our ancestors. We failed all the way along to keep the law. We cannot justify ourselves by the law. They're making that clear. Verse 11, but we believe. And we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in the same way as they also. So, so he said, but here's salvation. It's through grace alone, through Jesus Christ alone. And all the people kept silent. And they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done among them. Now after this, they stopped speaking when James stood up, right? Brethren, listen to me. Simon has related how God first concerned himself about taking among the Gentiles a people for his name. And then he goes on to quench these great string of Old Testament passages to show that God had a plan to save Gentiles from the beginning. That's always part of his plan. Verse 19, therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. Okay, let's not add a bunch of things onto him. But he does add some stuff. And why does he do this? Look at verse 20. But that, we, but that we write to them that they should abstain from things contaminated by idols, from fornication, and from what is strangled, and from blood. Now you go, wait a minute here. Scott, you just said salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, Jesus Christ alone. And they just affirmed it. But now they say, here's four things you should stay away from. What they're doing is, if you don't do these things you're never going to reach the Jews. So these are things that are not concerned with your salvation. These are, these are perfect things that God was preparing these missionaries, these Gentiles and, and Jews who were going to go back to their people and share the gospel. They said, you should not do these things because they're going to be difficult. Now, these things, some of these are really bad, but notice it says, abstain from things contaminated by idols. The Jews of all people knew that idol worship was bad. They knew what their forefathers did to the gods of Baal and, and Morlock and all of that, and they knew it cost them greatly. They went to judgment for it, and they still remained under the judgment of God. So if you're going to mess around with idols, you, they're going to throw you out on the, on the street. So don't play around with it. Don't go buy that. Don't hang out around idols. It's going to be very difficult. Look, if you want to lead someone to Christ and you're hanging around some things that are very worldly, it's going to be difficult. What's the next thing he says? I'm going to run out of time tonight. Um, uh, fornication. You go, well, duh. I, uh, you know. But, but here's what I think more is the idea here. Fornication was associated in so many ways with these pagan rituals and pagan temples. And so he said, look, if you're going to have any association with that, they're not going to listen to you. The Jews know the Old Testament and know what the Bible says about immorality, and they know what God did to them for their immorality. If you mess around with any of that immoral behavior that's, that's there or associate with any of that in the pagans, they're not going to listen to you. And then 
if you, if you hang around or eat something that's strangled, that, that, would have been, that would have been very hard for them, right? They were taught that, that blood was, was slit and, and the jugular vein was cut and that blood was come out and, and there was a way to sacrifice. And if you're involved with that, 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 would, that would not appeal to the Jews. And it was just pure. The pagans strangled their animals to death in a violent, angry death of that animal. And, and the Jews would have none of that. And then the last one is blood. I mean, people drank blood in these religions, right? If you're in our Leviticus series that I just finished, we talked about that, why God said that in Leviticus, not to drink the blood, because it was so associated with the pagans, because when they drank the blood of their enemies or the blood of a goat or something, they would gain the life, they thought, from that other animal and be a superhuman being. It was bad. So if you're a blood drinker, you're not going to reach the Jews. That's what he's saying. Do you see this? Now, Scott, what's the rest of it? Verse 21. For Moses, from ancient generations in every city, there are those who preach him, since he is, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So, so hold to the scriptures. God has had the scriptures taught in their synagogues all through. Use the Old Testament to show who Christ is. Verse 22, does seem good to the apostles and the elders and with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Uh, Judas called uh, Barsabas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Now, how does this flush out? Right away, Acts chapter 16. We get to Acts chapter 16, something interesting happens. Now, time's gone by right here. And Paul's, he goes to Derby and Elystra, and there's a disciple there. His name's Timothy. He's a son of a Jewish woman, and he's a, he's a believer, but his father is Greek, right? So he's, to the Jews, he's a half-breed. He's, he's not going to be welcome in the Jewish society, but he's a godly man, and Paul wants him with him. Verse 2, and he was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew his father was Greek. Now, here's a classic example. Here's what the Lord does. So Paul says, look, I don't want to be a stumbling to the Jews. I want to be a Jew as a Jew. I love Timothy. Can you imagine this story? Timothy, here's what we're going to do. We don't want to be a stumbling block to these Jews. They all know who your daddy is. So guess what we're going to do, Timothy? We're going to circumcise you as an adult. Not an easy thing for Timothy to hear. You go, well, wait a minute. Isn't circumcision can't save you? That's right. But Paul's on a mission strategy here. It's to go to the Jews, and that means enter the synagogue. And, and, and he's going to keep some of the religious ceremonies so he can win some. And to bring Timothy into the synagogue, an uncircumcised half-breed would close the door from most opportunities. What a sport, Timothy. Give him a hurrah type of thing, Right? That means Timothy had the same mindset as Paul. I'll do whatever it takes to win the Jews. Back in verse 20 quickly. Again, the words are important here for those under the law. To those who are under the law, for those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law. These are important words, right? Paul's talking about Jews here. Again, and he, he did this, and he's doing this as, as his talk in verse, the beginning of verse 20, but now he's still talking about Jews because they're under the law. But Paul makes it painfully clear that he himself is not under the law. Notice that. Though, though not being myself under the law, he wants to make this clear, painfully clear. But he's willing to put himself under certain ceremonial aspects of the law in order that he might not offend so that he would win those to the law. Now we see him do this in in many places. Um, even those that don't have, those who have pagan law, he goes in Acts 17, he walks through, he sees all their gods right there. He doesn't make a big fit about that. Here are all these creepy gods, fertility and all this stuff are in, in Mars Hill in their temple. He's actually in the temple talking to them and then he comes to a god of unknown and so he uses that. See how he does this? He puts himself under their law, no, not under it. He goes through there, he recognizes all these gods they have, and then he comes to one that he can preach the gospel in. But then you go to Acts chapter 21, just briefly, and I'll just have to tell you the story here. 
You go, well, how does this look? How, what's an example of being under the law but not being under the law? Chapter 21, verse 15 and following, you find Paul um, back again in some trouble. He's in the Ephesus area, and there's a bunch of Jews that don't like him, and they've said, they've got this rumor going around. You know how people like to spread rumors and destroy your reputation. This is what they did to Paul. they got this rumor going around that he teaches against circumcision, that he teaches don't circumcise your children, that he's against the law of Moses. This rumor gets going around. And so he meets with the elders again. And the elders go, Paul, we believe what you're doing. We've seen what God's doing to the Gentiles. We see what he's doing in the Jews. In fact, in this text, he says, there's thousands of Jews who have come to know Jesus Christ. But, but Paul, they're afraid of you. They, they think you're teaching something different. So here's what we want you to do. We want you to go with these four guys. They've made a vow. A vow was to where you would, you would vow not to drink liquor and not to, not to do a bunch of list of things. We know these Old Testament vows, and you would shave your head off, and you would give a gift to God in celebration of who he was and worship of him. So we got these four guys. They've kept this vow. They're believers, and they're going, in, they're going into the temple, and they're going to they're shave their hair off, and they're going to give that hair to God and, and an offering to him, and you should go with them, and you should do that. <laughs> He's the apostle Paul. He, he might have liked his hair. But you know what he does? You can read this, 15 through, through 26. He goes into the temple, shaves his head, so that he might win some Jews. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? I, we've all heard stories where somebody's going through chemo and lost their hair, and then some of us, you know, somebody shaved their head, you know. And just looking around the room, some of you may not be able to ever give this gift to God. <laughs> but Paul did it. He did it because the elders said, look, we don't think you're going to get into these tabernacles, these temples, because there's this office, off of rumor going about that you're doing all these things. And we think if you go do this with these four other men, they'll accept you and they'll hear the message. Now that's, that's an amazing statement. He's living under the law with these others so that I might win those under the law. Quickly see, those who are without the law, 21. Look at verse 21. Ooh, got to get back there. I have a special surprise here shortly, so hang on with me. To those who are without the law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. Now, some might think Paul is saying, look, I'm, I'm going to this Christianity because it has this antinomian feel, you know, where you just go, grace, grace, you know, oh, I'm a sin, I, I can sin, I can live any way I want, and I'll just pull out the grace card and throw it. I'm immoral, but hey, grace. I lie and cheat, hey, grace. That's antinomianism. Romans 6 teaches dead against this. Grace teaches us to live for Jesus Christ, that we're under the law of Christ now. But some might think that. So notice what Paul says, not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Paul's saying that I am not rejecting the law of God, for the law, of, the law is good, the law is useful, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, but I'm under the law of Christ, and so I set aside uh, things, Jewish ceremonies, I, I, I'll, I'll do certain things because I want to win people, right? So, so I'm under the law of the gospel. So when Paul was with the Jews, he was very Jewish. When he was with the Gentiles, he lived like a Christian Gentile, not easy. And you go, well, wait a minute, how did he do that? Well, it was difficult. You're over here with this group, and you, you don't want to offend, and, and yet you're bold with the gospel. Then you're over with this group, and, and you're, you don't want to offend, but you're bold with the gospel. That's how he did it. And you know how hard it was? Peter couldn't do it in, in Genesis, uh, excuse me, Galatians chapter 2, could he? Peter's still struggling with, with that. He was, it was young in the ministry, right? And so he acts like a Gentile, is having fun with them, and the Jews show up from Jerusalem or Antioch, and he goes, ooh. And he steps aside, and Paul goes, that's hypocrisy. See, that's not easy, is it? You want to win people for Christ? You've got to die to self. That's what he's saying. And so others have lost it. Maybe a good example that we have seen sometimes is where... Um, there's a situation maybe in your home and you have a, a, a family member who's maybe living in immorality and, and yet you want to have a relationship with them, right? And so you, you invite them over for dinner, but you, you don't let them commit immoral acts within your house and you, you have to make that clear. This might be your own children, right? 
but that you feed them and you love them and you see needs you can meet and you care for them, right? See, this is what, this is what Paul would do. This is what he's encouraging Christians to, to live for. So whatever group he was with, Jews or Gentiles, this is how he lived his life. Now notice the last one here, to the weak. Well, most likely he's referencing new Christians, right? And possibly those maybe even caught up in the legalism of Corinth here. But first, this, this would be a new Christian who is saved out of Judaism, right? They're still struggling a little bit. There's still a desire for the temple. That's all they've ever known. They're connected with Jewish friends and, and leaders, right? Maybe a rabbi or something. They're still attracted to certain customs and feasts and traditions that were in the Jewish home. And, and they're even making careful choices of their food. But what that happened, haven't, hasn't happened yet is they're still not fully understanding their freedoms in Christ. And so Paul says, look, I'm going to be careful with these weeks. They haven't quite figured out yet how free they are in Jesus Christ. And they're still rep, uh, wrestling with gripping traditions. With gripping traditions. Maybe I, I've had some people like this. They were... Catholics who I believe were saved. They were in places where there wasn't a good church. They were still in the Catholic. That's all they ever known. Generation after generation. Catholic after Catholic. And, and they're there for a while. And, and as much as as Christians are going, oh, please come out of that. But sometimes they're there until they grow. And then on their own they go, I believe in Christ alone, but I don't think they do. And they, and they come out. But if you take a brand new Christian you say, your church is apostate, you, you start pounding. They're not going to get that. Paul's saying, hey, be weak. Be weak with the weak. And disciple them out of those things. Second, I think he's also talking about Gentiles. Those who are new converts. These would be those who are saved out of the idolatry of pagan religions. They're young believers. They want nothing to do with that. In fact, they're angry over all that. And so the festivals and the communities, um, it, it, they see it as a trap. And they hear their music and and they, they see the meat offered to idols, and there's temples, and they want nothing to do that, and they're so easily offended. And so Paul, Paul says, look, they're still immature. Be careful with them. Stop eating that meat. <laughs> You're hurting these young, even though the meat's not wrong. So Paul had such a different view. He had such a different view, and he did not want to cause people to stumble. Well, here's my surprise. I want you to come tonight. In the next five verses are some of the most precious verses to me. And I've chosen to reserve these verses for tonight's service. These verses are, are some of my favorite. They've challenged me personally. They're full of athletic uh, metaphors. Um, as God called me into the ministry, these, these verses spoke to me in such a powerful way. And so I'm not going to finish this here. I'm going to finish this tonight. I told you I wasn't above bribery. <laughs> I'm not preaching this passage next week. I'm preaching it tonight. So I'm pleading with you to come out tonight and hear this as we challenge these seven graduates and we challenge the church. And I will finish all of this tonight. Father, thank you as we turn to your table. Lord, thank you for time in the word. Thank you that you teach us through this Apostle Paul who followed the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that it is a clear instruction of, of how, how to love people, how, how to give up things, how to die, deny self and, and have self-control and to love the gospel and love others, Lord. Lord, it's so clear in this passage that he had such a heart to see the saved lost. In fact, he would make statements that he would give up his own salvation for the sake of his brethren. What a commitment he had to the gospel. And so, Lord, now we're going to partake as a family here, a church family, in the Lord's table. It's your table, Lord. It's not Riverbend's table or Scott's or anyone else. It's the Lord's table. And this is going to remind us, Lord, that you're worth communicating to people about. You're worth sharing this precious gospel. So, Lord, as we turn to the table now and sing a song together and, and take this, this beautiful meal that reminds us of what you did, Lord, may you be glorified and may you hear your saints worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.